Hey everyone, welcome to Great Quarter Guys. We are live from the Freight Waves HQ2 here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I have with me both members of the Freight Intel Group. My other two members, I have retail and consumer guru, Seth Holm, and I also have my boss and director of research, Kevin Hill. I can't tell you how excited I am. I haven't seen Seth in person since early March. I haven't had both of these boys at the desk with me in many months, so I hope you're as excited as I am. I am. The gang is back in town, at least for today, uh, and it's going to be fantastic. Fantastic show, right? Yeah, it is. So we're going to go uh, do our favorite segment to begin with. We're going to start off with You Care or Nah, my kind of ode to Dan Lebetard and his show, Highly Questionable. But then we're going to have a special guest. We're going to have Bruce Chan, who is making his FreightWaves TV debut. He is the VP of Logistics and Equity Researcher at Stiefel. So make sure to stay tuned for that after the break. But yeah, let's hop right into uh, our You Care or Nah. The way this will go, I will present an idea a topic, maybe an event, and the boys will tell me whether they care or not and why. So I'll start with Seth. I'll start with you, my man. The first one, the household surveys of consumers, both the University of Michigan uh, Consumer Sentiment Index and the Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index hit uh, pandemic highs in September. Do you care or not? Uh, yeah, definitely care. I mean, if you're into trucking, you got to care. I mean, the consumer drives 40% of trucking volumes. It's been holding it up. Industrial is starting to improve, so you have that sort of solid base getting even stronger uh, as we head into 2021. It's a good thing. Kev? I do too. I mean, we are all over the Bank of America credit and debit card information every single week and placer data as well showing uh, the, the retail and, and the consumer. And there's this mixed shift, and we talk about it all the time, so I'm going to talk about it once more right now. This mixed shift from travel, entertainment, dining out, all of the, that, those dollars are, are moving into tangible goods from kind of services, uh, hotels as well, right, into tangible goods and home improvements been a, a, a big bright spot along with uh, anything that moves by truck. Anything, and, and last mile is, is certainly a huge part of that with the e-commerce, so the acceleration in that. So I do care about it a lot. It's, it's been good for the freight markets. Yeah, I'll round it out. I do care as well. I, I do worry that we're going to see a retreat coming. Uh, if you track these kind of with in line with the COVID cases, you see that the valleys and the peaks uh, meet at the same time. They kind of work in inverse relationship, where in April and July, you kind of, kind of saw the bottom of these two surveys. Uh, that was the two days, the two months we had peaks in COVID cases. We now have kind of that trend kind of upwards towards into the winter months. People are expecting it to be kind of a rough winter. So we may see that pullback, but for now, uh, it's a really good thing, and it's, it's welcome news moving into the holiday season. No doubt. All right, so number two, uh, I'll start with you on this one, Kevin. We've got a little news on Walmart. So Walmart is looking to create a one-stop shop for healthcare with Walmart insurance services. You care or not? I don't personally. I, I don't really care too much about it. I think, uh, I think we've talked about Walmart a little bit on Great Quarter Guys, and, and I'm, you know, Seth has me a believer in the tech play. So I care about that. I care about the tech play. Of, I, I care about getting the multiple up from 0.7 of revenue to maybe 1.4 or, or higher. Uh, I don't know if the insurance play is going to be loved by, by Wall Street or investors in, in that same multiple way that the, the tech, the, the partnerships with Shopify, the drones that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later on. And I think they did a, a, another partnership or, or deal, uh, well, um, TikTok. Actually, yeah. if that goes through, yeah, I don't we'll know. See. I had another know one about the, the super thing. app in India. Did. The super app, yeah, yeah, exactly right. So that's what I care about, not too much about the, the health insurance, health health. All right, Seth, we know you're long Walmart. You care about health insurance? Yeah, services? I mean, I, I agree. I think it's a cool idea. 
you think about retailers, they're always trying to get people that there's repeat visits and the loyalty. You know, that's one thing that's huge about uh, grocery is, you know, they do 55% of their business in grocery. That's what gets you in the store. Maybe not that once a week or multiple times a week visit, but anything to do to get that sticky customer. And uh, I think they're talking about pairing it with Walmart Plus, which uh, we'd seen some data that I, I kind of find hard to believe, but supposedly they already have 11% of Americans signed up for Wall Street, I mean, uh, Walmart Plus, which yep. will be interesting to see what the company has to say about that. But I don't think it's a big needle mover, especially in the near term for Walmart, given how big they are. But it, I mean, couldn't hurt. It's not a bad idea. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I don't personally care. I, I kind of like the move, but I don't yeah. care about the move. I, I, I'm a, uh, a Walmart holder, a big disclosure there. Uh, people are consolidating their trips to the grocery stores, so it kind of makes sense if you buy your jeans at the same place, you buy your juice, you might buy your health care at the same yeah. place, you buy your hair products. I see something working there. Yeah, and Walmart has done this before. I mean, if you go into a Walmart, you have a, a, a bank in there, right? You have the bank, right. you have uh, you know, McDonald's Pharmacy. and a lot of them. Yeah, the See already, uh, I think Western, not Western Union, but another uh, money transfer. Vision uh, places, places the, the, yeah, all that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it's in line. Uh, it makes sense. All right, on to the third one. The question is: Has COVID killed Black Friday? Retail analytics provider Shopper Shopper Track believes there will be at least 25% less foot traffic in malls over the holiday season. They believe much of that drop will be due to a slow Black Friday. Seth, you care or not? Uh, no, I don't care. Uh, the thing is, you know my feelings on this. I mean, you've just seen a mix shift to e-commerce. Where I would care is if I was a mall-based store because they don't have a big, a lot of times they don't have a big online business. But for everyone else, I actually think the Black Friday numbers will be at least flat, probably positive year over year. I mean, you have Amazon Prime Day starting October 13th and 14th. Uh, that'll get people excited. We're already talking about a longer peak season in trucking. Mm -hmm because of that but no i think you know you're just going to replace that um you know physical foot traffic with online eyeballs so not a big deal to me i still think the spending will be up I think I agree with Seth. I think spending will be up. I kind of care about it a little bit because over the last decade or so, maybe maybe over the last 20 years, you've seen this, the people pushing forward Black Friday, Black Friday. Whenever I was a kid, everything was closed down Thanksgiving Day. I mean, there was nothing open. And now that they've pushed it or pulled it, pulled it back to where everyone's working on Thanksgiving Day, they're, they're trying to maximize that Black Friday, and hopefully that trend will, will go away. I don't really like that trend. I, you know, e-commerce is the play now, though there's no reason uh, to certainly go to stores during a pandemic, and Black Friday deals isn't going to pull any, any additional traffic. It's all the e-commerce play uh, right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in between you guys. I, I don't care. Um, I, I still enjoy a trip to the mall every once in a while, but I'd say like most people, especially younger than me, think they're antiquated and think that you know it's just a, this the acceleration of something that was already dying uh, in malls. I read something today, I think it was uh, one of the big investment banks, Goldman Sachs or, or Barclays or something, they said that they think 22% of the mall space needs to be completely completely repurposed. So we, you know, we've talked about things we mm -hmm. might see in those spaces, whether it's distribution centers or uh, you know, the idea in New Jersey, they've created more of like a, a one-stop shop mall where you can get your entertainment and you can go skiing inside and all these crazy things. Well, you um, have to go to the mall to, to try on all these Jordans you're buying. Yeah, I, I've got my size down now, so I can just get them, I can get okay. them straight off Jordan, uh, yeah, nice. Nike.com, uh, which is nice. So yeah, but Black Friday, they're expect, 
interesting. You know, Black Friday typically doubles the sales of Super Saturday, the, the last day before the last Saturday before Christmas. Probably not going to see that this year. Um, but in any case, the people are still spending a lot online, right? We, we, there's been news reports this week out on apparel companies uh, raving about e-commerce. Nike's, Levi said that they're going to be profitable a year ahead of schedule on the e-commerce side. Columbia as well. So I think all these guys are going to be fine. The only people I worry about are those stores that don't really have much of an e-commerce presence that are, that are only uh, there in malls. They'll probably struggle. And, and they're already struggling anyway. They're struggling before the pandemic. Those, those stores in the mall True. that don't have a, a, a powerful e-commerce presence. Yeah, right. and, you know, I mean, if you didn't have an e-commerce presence before going into COVID, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, Probably I guess it's not too out. late, but, you know, where were you? <laughs> where were you the last 20 years? Uh, exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, so we've got two more for you. They're gonna, we're going to switch, switch uh, focus to the airlines a little bit. So travel data company Sirium found that 43 commercial airlines have failed since January this year. And by failed, I mean either completely shuttered or have suspended uh, operations indefinitely. Uh, Kevin, you, you've been the one tracking this travel data online on LinkedIn pretty pretty closely. Uh, do you care or not that 43 airlines have failed so far this year? Uh, you know, I, I I guess I do care that they failed, but I, I know why they failed. You know, and I have been tracking uh, TSA passenger check, uh, checks uh, as part of the alternative data that, that we, we look at quite a bit in the Freight Intel Group. And I, we have about 30, I think we're still below 40% of, of 2020 passengers mm-hmm. uh, compared to 2019, right? So only about 40% of traffic. It was down 5% back in the, the dark days of April. Uh, it's been hovering around 20, 25%. And I, I think it's going to be a long, long time before the airline passenger numbers recover. I think business travel is a huge part of that. And I think that, that people, a lot of companies have learned to sell without actually going and seeing customers. Yeah, look at us here. I, I doing exactly virtual right. Event. Virtual uh, everybody's at home right, right now. Uh, there's a lot, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of industries like the in-person conferences, but virtual conferences have, have replaced that. And I, 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 I think it's going to be a couple years before we, we see a real recovery. Seth, how about you, man? You know, it's interesting. I'm kind of struck by how big of a number that is, because I, I think now after we went through a wave of consolidation and about 10 years ago in the airlines, you know, the top four airlines are like 70% of U.S. passenger traffic. So on the one hand, I guess I don't really care in the sense that it's probably, uh, is that a global number? Yeah, it's a global, global. number. Okay, well, because yeah, that's surprisingly that. high. It must. I was thinking it must have been a lot of little small regional uh, airlines. Um, but I, I do think Kevin hit on something there. Uh, I just I do worry about uh, just the business travel. I mean, in the age of Zoom, and um, you know, we've had people on podcasts and on our network here on Freightwaves that you know they've that I've listened to uh, from home. You know, saying they used to fly like 300 times a year and they haven't flown in six months. Um, and you think about the knock-on effects throughout the entire economy, from the airlines to hotels and everything else. And so, I mean, in that sense, I do care from the greater economic standpoint, but. Um, they're, they're, you know, the, the airlines in the U.S. I think are too big to fail uh, right now. So I, I agree with that. Definitely, they're too big to fail. Though there'll probably be another bailout. Um, there's, they're in the process of mass layoffs, so they, they are struggling, but they are too big to fail. 
Yeah, that seems to be one place where the Democrats and Republicans see as a, mm -hmm. as a major point. I think there's something like 600 million, or I can't remember exactly the number, but they're trying to get something passed uh, for the airlines. I got to say, this was a bit of a trick set up for you guys. I didn't give you the last year or the year before's number. There's been uh, 43 year to date this year, but in 2019 there was 46 and 56 in 2018. But oh. that, given that we've had more, we've much. had more airplanes idled this year than in the previous two years. Yeah. So they've been they've been a little bit bigger, um, big, little bit bigger liners, but they're still very small. So there's there's been 20 that have. Uh, 10 planes or more, which is the most in the last three years. And if there, there wasn't any bailouts, there'd be uh, the, the three that own 75 or 70% of the market right. uh, would be bankrupt right now. Yeah, exactly. The big, my biggest reason I wanted to bring this up is that, you know, the, is there a bigger read through to the rest of the market? Probably not simply because of the bailouts and because of the, the scale of the companies uh, that run them. All right. So last one, uh, kind of airline related. I'm super excited about this company. I, I'm going to foreshadow whether I care or not on this one, but uh, it's Boom Supersonic. So just yesterday, uh, Denver-based supersonic jet startup Boom uh, unveiled their prototype plane. It is the baby Boom. It is absolutely gorgeous. Here's a picture of it. Uh, so this is a one to three size scale of what will eventually be their commercial plane called the Overture. They're looking to run flights similar to what the Concorde did back. Uh, they, their first flight was about 50 years ago, and they expect to reach speeds of Mach 2.2. That'll get from uh, New York to London in about three hours. I would love to be on one of those one day. I'm foreshadowing. I'll go first this time. I care. I think it's awesome. I'm super excited for super supersonic, um, supersonic flight. We've got two minutes here, boys. Uh, take it away. You care about this or not, Seth? I care. I mean, I've, I've kind of wondered why this hasn't, you know, the Concorde was flying that fast 20 or 30 years ago, and it feels like there hasn't been a lot of leaps in commercial airline travel, and it's just been sort of the status quo for a long time. So, I mean, I would, I think I'd be a little bit terrified to be the guinea pig to get on that at first, but uh, I do care, yeah. I do, too. I, I think it's great, and, and as Seth said, the Concorde, and I, I can't remember if they were financially struggling about the time they had a wreck in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, that pretty well shut the Concorde down, uh, but I, I think it's, it's going to be great. They have a nice runway, and I was talking about it just a second ago. It's going to be a one, two, three-year recovery, so they have one, two, three years to, to introduce, get, get this commercially viable back when that, that Patrick's numbers and flights be recovering and it'll be a, a, a perfect timing for disruption yeah it makes a lot of sense. I, I just thought of this. I kind of see a lot of similarities in at least the market entry for Boom as I did for Tesla, right? Trying to, they're, they're going to be the first independently uh, funded and independently created jet in, I don't know, 100 years, I think, in a long time. Same thing with Tesla, trying to create the first car company in America in a, in a very long time. Uh, so that's super exciting. So, Seth, we've got, I think, 45 seconds here. I'll, let, I'll get my last question to you. We're, we're done with the, uh, the CEO knows. Uh, but How's the holiday going to season? How's the holiday season going to look uh, if we have a bailout or if we have another round of stimulus and if we do not have a round of stimulus? What's it going to mean for consumers? You got 30 seconds. I think it'll be fine either way. I mean, we track that consumer spending data really closely, and there's been virtually no fall, actually no fall off since the enhanced unemployment benefits expired at the end of uh, July, and so I think it'll be fine. I think it'll be spectacular if we do get those $1,200 checks or you know. Trump and Pelosi going back and forth. Um, I think online will be really healthy. I have some worries about the brick and mortar, but it'll be cool. good either way. We'll be right back after these messages with Bruce Chan from Steeple. You guys stick around. Don't go anywhere. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We have Bruce Chan with us. <clears throat> we just spoke about some very fast passenger movement. Now we're going to talk about some very fast goods movement. We're going to hop right into drones. Uh, this is a space that Bruce knows well. Bruce, how are we, my man? Doing well. Thank you for having me. 
Now, oh, thank you for joining us. So uh, the news is we're going to look at this through a lens of Walmart. They just recently struck some major deals. They struck three different deals with drone operators to kind of test how this technology is going to be used for on-demand deliveries in their effort to better help, uh, to better compete with Amazon. So I'll give you a little info on the three deals. The first one is Flytrex. They're going to deliver groceries and household essentials in the Fayetteville, North Carolina area. The second is Zipline. They're going to do on-demand deliveries of health and wellness products sometime early next year. That company is known for its medical drone deliveries in African countries like Ghana and Rwanda. And then the last one is with Drone Up and Quest Diagnostics, and this is going to happen immediately. They're going to be doing deliveries of at-home COVID-19 tests in the Vegas and uh, Buffalo, New York area. So, Bruce, let's talk about these three different use cases. Which of these makes the most sense to you and why? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I think just starting off, I think I remember the conference call where uh, Fred Smith was talking about you know drones, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I believe his quote was something like, you know, it's expensive to overcome the laws of physics or expensive to overcome, you know, gravity. And uh, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think, you know, when, when you're battling with these forces of nature, um, you know, you're kind of limited to a couple of use cases here that, that typically involve something that's high value, uh, typically involves something that's high demand as well, and, uh, you know, potentially lightweight. So, you know, framing those factors in mind, I think probably the last two use cases make um, a lot of sense right now. Pharmaceuticals, um, you know, delivering things um, that don't weigh a lot, that might be an urgent need. Um, and then when you take the last use case, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with a potential avoidance of contact with a sick patient. Um, and I think, you know, obviously that, that adds some, some flame to the, uh, uh, to the use case there. Yeah, so, you know, one of the use cases, right, that, that doesn't really make sense are, are groceries, low-value items. I mean, and, and I'm still always confused about the payload capacity and kind of the, the operating expenses of, of flying a drone in to, to deliver merchandise. I mean, what are the economics on, on drones right now, Bruce? Yeah, well, they're getting better and better every day, but uh, they're still very, very far away from, you know, a guy in a delivery truck. Uh, it's tough to get cheaper than that in terms of density. And again, that's really what you're battling here with drones. You've got, you know, limited payloads, which is, um, you know, minimizing the amount of goods and the amount of density that you can have in the air. And, you know, as cheap as they're getting, it's still more expensive, like I said, to fly a drone than, you know, than to drive a delivery truck around. So, um, you know, when you talk about groceries, when you talk about shipping, you know, ice cream, even though that's, you know, a, a needed now <laughs> item, even though it's, you know, liable to melt, um, it's still heavy. Um, so, you know, I, I think the use case for that type of application are going to be smaller. But, um, you know, again, if somebody's willing to pay for the service, then maybe you can make a commercial case. So I don't see it as being something that's really going to take off and become the new norm. Uh, but it's more optionality for the consumer. So if somebody wants to pay for it, I think, you know, just like your um, boom or baby boom conversation with a supersonic jet, you know, if you ask me, I would say I, maybe I, I don't care because I think it's a very niche type of product. Um, but, you know, for somebody that's willing to pay for the businessman who does transatlantic once a week, you know, it could make a lot of sense. I think you're dealing with something fairly similar here. He made a good point there that Fred Smith talked about the, the density of stops is probably the biggest challenge for drones. That's something that Workhorse is working on right now, right, with their swarm uh, idea. So, you know, what, um, what are we expecting here? How, how quickly, what is the best drone idea that you think is out there? How quickly do you think we're going to see these in neighborhoods? And do you think it's Workhorse? Is it some sort of swarm idea where you have a van and then drones to come off the top? 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting case. Um, I don't know if it's the best use case out there. I mean, Workhorse is certainly um, doing a lot of experimentation with drones. They're pretty far along. Uh, there are other companies, though, like Ehung, that are building much higher payload drones for use in industrial-type applications and eventually even, you know, autonomous passenger transportation, which, you know, I think is, is very interesting. Um, so that's something that I think, you know, we should keep our eye on. But, you know, as far as the last mile, as far as consumer delivery, um, you know, uh, again, I, I think there are other applications um, or other called platforms that might make a little bit more sense. You could have um, terrestrial-type drones, for example, that come out of the delivery vehicle, which may make a little bit more sense. Yeah, I, I like the workhorse idea. I, I, I just don't see how it, it's scalable. I don't see a use case where it's really scalable to, to, to really get the economics down to where it's, we're going to see neighborhoods full of, of drones coming no, in. No, Amazon blimp coming with uh, 50 drones dispersing. What do you ever think about that, Bruce? You think you'll ever see the, uh, the Amazon blimp with, <laughs> with the swarm coming out of it? So, no, but I'll tell you that I think it's a less crazy idea than I did probably five years ago. Still crazy, but maybe less crazy. Yeah, I agree with um, you on that. It's less crazy every day, but it's still a little right. crazy. Yeah. So this is the, this is the final mile, uh, the, the last mile logistics summit. So let's shift from drones to another very unique and, and you know, niche part of the final mile, and that is the white gloves. So we're going to talk a little bit about it uh, from the lens of XBO. Uh, so Bloomberg reported over the weekend that XBO is kind of courting offers for its European supply chain business. Uh, this, has news, this news has everybody theorizing on what Bradley Jacobs' moves are. Will he uh, look to, to sell off the other four business units that were originally looking to, uh, to sell back, uh, I guess back it was in January now. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they were, trying to, they were trying to move the North American and European brokerage and logistics and transportation. Included in that is their final mile uh, segment, which is a huge segment for them, something like 900 million. They have uh, roughly, they have the largest market share of any of the heavy goods final mile divisions. So to you, Bruce, uh, is XBO really looking to shop? Do you think that's a possibility that they might go out and, and sell the final mile uh, division? And if not, or if they are looking to do that, why are they looking to do that? They have a, a huge and growing segment there. I think there's always a lot of mystery and intrigue that surrounds Brad Jacobs, but and I think when you really get down to it and realize that you know he owns about a fifth of the company personally, um, you know, and that he's probably looking at this company more like an investor would than your typical management team, then it, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. Um, so you know, when he was considering the strategic asset sale, I think that's because he felt like those pieces of the business were being undervalued and he could capture a lot more value by shopping those out to a market that, you know, at that point was relatively robust in terms of the number of suitors that were out there. Uh, so the company's official line right now is that they're not considering anything like that. But, um, you know, again, if you think about him like a very large investor, I think if he gets the right price, if he gets the right deal, then he would certainly consider selling that piece or any of the pieces of the business, really. Um, and, um, you know, with regard to last mile, um, you know, again, it's a possibility. But I think, I think you know, the European uh, logistics operation probably makes a little bit more sense for him to jettison at this point. You know, we've all heard about some of the union struggles that are going on there. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a lower margin business than some of their legacy stuff. Um, you know, as far as last mile is concerned, you know, maybe you start to see that trade make a little bit more sense. If some of this IC legislation that's coming around in California and elsewhere uh, starts to get more teeth, if it becomes more expensive to operate an IC-based last mile network, then, you know, you might see, um, you know, more of a willingness, uh, you know, for Brad and the, the rest of the XPO team to, to let go of that part of the business. 
Yeah, I think uh, Brad Jacobs is, is thinking more like an investor, looking at that multiple, looking at the, the old Dominion multiple and, and focus on that, especially in January. Uh, talking about uh, profitability and low margin and high margin businesses, uh, how's Last Mile doing in, in profitability right now? I, you know, XBO has a, a market share, the largest market share, but it's only about 8 9% of yeah, the market. Super fragmented. So is this a pro you know, how profitable is Final Mile right now? I would say, broadly speaking, not necessarily XPO, but I think broadly speaking, mm -hmm. you can expect an operating margin in the range of the mid to high single digits. You know, if you get really good, then I think a low double-digit type margin is is possible. So it, it can be a decent business. Um, you know, are there lower margin businesses in the portfolio? Sure. Are there higher margin ones? Absolutely. Uh, but I think you know the, the growth here is what's really exciting about Final Mile. So, uh, Bruce, you think the segment is more challenging than really than people give it credit for or, or realize. Tell us why you think that. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because as a final mile service provider, you're really removed from a lot of the parts of the business that, you know, you would otherwise control in, in other facets of transportation. Um, take, for instance, the end consumer. You know, the person that you're delivering to, the receiver, uh, is not your end customer. They tend to be quite fickle in terms of, you know, their requirements. They're not professionals. Um, you know, so meeting those service demands are very challenging. And also, if you think about uh, the people that, you know, you're utilizing to manage, ultimately, your, your end service, they're not your employees. And they may be employed by other final mile operators out there. So, you know, that training component, you know, keeping tabs on them while not running afoul of any, you know, federal or, or you know, state local regulations regarding IC employee classification is also a very complex business. Yeah, Bruce, I mean, there's definitely a lot of challenges in Final Mile. I think one of the biggest ones has to be density, right? There's, there's just not that dense of a network. There may not be that many people uh, to, who need a Final Mile delivery. So my, you know, the next topic is also about a company that's trying to build the densest Final Mile um, logistics network, and that's Uber. Uh, so we'll look at this again through the lens of the, the new money that they just raised. Uber Freight went out and got $500 million from an investor group led by Greenbrier Equity Group at a $3.3 billion uh, post-money valuation, or roughly three times revenue pre money. And we really think that the rumors here of Uber Freight's death have been exaggerated. Or there's really just been a massive pivot by the company, right? So they've seen that their rides had, had completely been drained, and they saw Uber Eats exploding, and they thought, how can we merge Uber Freight and Uber Eats? And that seems to be what they're going to do. They're going to try to combine their over-the-road brokerage with their Uber Eats delivery network to create one of the world's most dense uh, last-mile capacity platforms. What do you make of this strategy, Bruce? Do you think it's a good one for Uber? Um, I, I think it's an interesting one. I mean, I've, I've heard this rumor out there. I don't know if it's been substantiated. Um, on its face, I don't know if it makes a ton of sense just because, you know, you're dealing with, um, you know, two ultimately completely different networks and customer types. Um, so, uh, you know, as it's been reported, I don't know if it makes a ton of sense. I, I could see Uber offering, um, you know, an interesting or innovative kind of end-to-end -end line haul e-commerce, you know, fulfillment straight through to the end customer type of, you know, service product or service offering. Um, I don't think this is going to be a product killer or, you know, complete market disruptor because remember that ultimately e-commerce is, you know, maybe 10 to 14 percent of total retail sales, depending on who you ask. And, um, you know, retail is certainly not the only commodity type that's flowing through freight transportation network. So, you know, there's a lot of other room out there. There are a lot of other players out there. Um, you know, even though Uber at this point on the freight side is maybe 800 to a billion dollars in gross revenue, remember that, you know, Robinson is upwards of 10 or 11 billion. So uh, still a lot of room to go in the long tail. 
Yeah, I, I agree with Bruce. It's aspirational. It, it definitely is, and I, I think you've seen that in the in the the, the mega or in the, the the enterprise truckload market of uh, those guys getting into final mile, right? So. Yeah, J.B. Hunt's done really well at it. Others have not. They've shed their assets or, or shut down their divisions, and it's a, a completely different business model. It's completely different, uh, you know, uh, network density, right? Than than over the road. It's a different different skill set for the drivers. I mean, a lot of times these are technicians that are posing as drivers uh, because it's over the threshold. It's very customer centric. I think Andrew Lockwood has a a talk uh, coming up later today about a customer-centric type of, uh, of skill set for it's a customer experience, right? We did a survey uh, about this as well. And I, I think that's what you, you see. It, it, it's just a very complex model. No doubt. It's definitely complex. Bruce, what do you think? Let's, let's, let's shift gears to the actual the PE angle here, the Greenbrier investment. Do you think this Greenbrier investment will kind of whet the appetite of other private equity in a place where venture capital has typically kind of feasted? Will there be a little bit of a fajita effect? Everybody sees the good stuff going around and, and kind of chases it? Well, I like that uh, fajita analogy, and I hope people don't take it to its logical next step, which is the digestive process of a fajita. But, <laughs> um, so, I'll say that you know, I, I think the um, financing market um, is very different now. There are a lot of changes going on um, you know, that, that are making this environment um, you know, look, look different than it has in years past. Um, I think that you know a few years ago we saw a massive influx of venture capital dollars that's shaken things up a little bit. That's maybe pushed private equity out of some of their traditional areas of investment. Um, maybe created more uh, more interest and more impetus. Um, you know, so I, I think that's part of the situation. Uh, you've got a lot of private equity dollars that are looking for a home. They're looking for an investment. They may find it in this type of application. Um, you know, so all things to consider there. That's a very good point, Bruce. And I want to go off off of that and um, and, and ask you this. You know, in the, uh, the PEVC world, how much uh, how much how much liquidity is out there that has to find a home very quickly? You know, in the next twelve to, to twenty four months, and how's that affecting uh, investment decisions right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, and uh, the honest answer is I, I don't know. But I'll tell you that uh, in the investment world right now, there is an incentive to take a little bit more risk, um, you know, on a relative basis than there has been in, in times past. So, uh, traditionally more conservative investments or investment types, I think, are going into uh, riskier type ventures, and that's probably some of what you're seeing now. I, I think an important consideration too in this, though, is it's not just PE money or VC money that's looking for a home, it's also a lot of companies that traditionally would have relied on, you know, more conservative financing uh, options that are um, pulling in these investment dollars. Because when you think about a PE type investor, you know, you're, you're talking about one or maybe a small, you know, cadre of investors versus the public equity markets. It's certainly a lot cheaper. Um, you know, so, so there are a lot of reasons why, you know, companies would look for PE dollars and PE dollars would look for uh, these types of companies. All right, Bruce, sorry for another analogy for you, but you said that investors are willing to take a little bit more risk right now. Are other digital freight matching apps and other digital brokerages, are they out feeling like Dak Prescott was this offseason? They see all the other quarterbacks getting a lot of money. He thinks it's his turn now and he's worth more than he actually is. Are they going to be go out and looking for money? Probably. I mean, it would be stupid not to if money's out there. Uh, that's my view, at least. So um, if, if they have the opportunity, which it seems like they will, um, you know, then I can only imagine that, that they would be out there chasing after it. And I don't think they're the only ones. I mean, you look out there at the market and see all the SPACs going on right now. Um, it, it's a feeding frenzy. So I think everybody uh, sees the opportunity. And if you can 
if you can seize the day, carpe diem, right? Right. All right, so there's an opportunity here that I wanted to, to shift gears to, and this is with Shipt. So this is the company that uh, Target acquired, I think sometime, actually it was a couple years ago, 2017 or 2018. Uh, they are you know, a last mile provider and help them uh, do deliveries. But we, they just announced that Shipt is going to be partnering with Bed Bath & Beyond to bring same-day delivery to their stores uh, over the next, you know, throughout the holiday season. But when Target kind of acquired Shipt, their plan was to use their last mile logistics technology to boost Target's own uh, supply chain. Yet here we are. Uh, this week, seeing that Shipt is going to partner with somebody else to help them. What do you think this means for the strategy, uh, at Bruce, at Target and Bed Bath & Beyond? Do you think that they see uh, comp the real competition as Amazon and Walmart with their very advanced last mile um, sectors and they're just trying to go after them? Or, or is just the competition not big enough to, is, is not big enough for them not to overlook uh, into the holiday season? The supply chain needs are more important. Yeah, I think it's a really good and interesting question, and uh, I don't I don't know what the strategy is, and I don't know if they know what the end strategy is. Um, I mean, a, a type of relationship like this would seem alien, uh, you know, a few years ago, but uh, in, in today's environments, we're seeing it everywhere. I mean, if you think about FBA, if you think about what Amazon is doing, um, you know, selling their third-party backhaul out there to potentially competitors, uh, I think you've got a lot of companies that are doing some extreme experimentation when it comes to their supply chains, which you know, they probably should be doing because the supply chain today is incredibly complex. Um, you know, so I, I think they're experimenting with, with density. I think they're experimenting with you know, co co cooperative uh, and competitive relationships. Um, and uh, you know, they'll, they'll see what sticks to the wall. Yeah, you're definitely right there. I mean, I'm thinking back to the Walmart and Shopify deals or even the, the multitude of deals that Walmart's done. The three we talked about at the beginning with, um, with drones, they're experimenting a lot, trying out new things. You know, Bed Bath & Beyond has also said that they're preparing for customers to shop earlier this year. They are expecting an earlier peak season. Amazon's certainly trying to reset that peak season. That's our next topic here is that Amazon, with their moving back of Prime Day, they've moved it now to uh, October 13th and 14th. They're looking to reset. A lot of analysts think they're going to start the peak season 75 days that's what we're going to have, 75 days of a peak season. Uh, and, you know, the way that Amazon's been able to change consumer behavior and change expectations, whether it started from two-day prime shipping to now same-day delivery to having 10 options of every good that you want, I mean, they've been able to change the way the consumers really, just the way the consumers shop. So uh, do you think that Amazon is going to be able to reset the peak season? Do you think this is now the beginning of the peak season, beginning in the middle of October, Bruce? I think they will be able to reset peak season. Um, I, I don't really know what peak season is anymore. I, you know, a lot of people would argue that the second quarter is the peak season, but I think that retailers modifying consumer behavior is, is nothing new. It certainly wasn't invented by Amazon. Anybody that's you know bought an engagement ring um, has probably thought about the fact that you know diamonds weren't really popular or or um, you know uh, in, in demand until De Beers created that ad campaign back in the '40s. Um, you know, so I think Amazon is definitely trying to, you know, pull peak season back a little bit, smooth it out. I mean, it doesn't make sense to build an entire global logistics network for, you know, Easter Sunday, so to speak. So to the extent that they can save costs by, you know, making some slight tweaks to consumer behavior, I think they will do it and should do it. Um, you know, Prime Day in and of itself um, is a total experiment that they started back in 2015. You know, if you think about um, what Alibaba does in China, yeah. Singles Day, I mean, that's 11, 11. all... Complete fabrication. Um, you know, I think there was some discussion about Black Friday. You know, that's something that was built by retailers, and you know, now looks to be getting dismantled by retailers. So, um, yeah, I, I think that there there is a lot of incentive to pull peak season forward to smooth things out, and if they can do it, they will, and they should. Yeah, I, I think you, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's it's 
you know, Amazon, if, if Amazon's going to try to extend peak season, every other retailer should just jump on board and maximize that too, because there's opportunity. We were talking about Black Friday earlier, and it's, it's going to be hit this year. It might be hit forever. Uh, because of this, because of the shift to e-commerce. So it, it's a great time for those e-tail, or retailers that were thinking ahead over the last 10 years and, and getting online presences and, and e-commerce straightened out. It would be a, a great way to, to, to dominate uh, the malls and the, the, the brick and mortars even more. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Bruce, given, the, given Amazon's ability to change our behaviors, even if they were to move Prime Day back to July next year, do you think this is a change that sticks long term? Well, <laughs> I think um, you know there's only so far that you can push consumers at least all at once. So mm-hmm. uh, you know that type of change will probably need to be more incremental. Um, but I, I think I think they'll try. Um, I think they're going to try to smooth the capacity peaks, um, you know, to reduce costs for themselves. It's something that we see with return logistics as well. You know, returns are anywhere from three times up to ten times as expensive as you know the outbound B2C movement. And if Amazon can say, hey. You know, we're going to give you a cheaper price if you agree not to return the item, or we're going to take better pictures and you know offer a better website description so that you know you're not disappointed when you receive something. Um, you know, then then we'll do it, and uh, I, I think we'll we'll see more of that. So you know, will a July start to the peak season stick? You know, oh. maybe, but I think yeah, they're no. going to push it as early as possible. Oh, I think I meant if, if they move Prime Day back to July next year, will they still try to create a peak season uh, in October? I think there's miscommunication there, but, but no big deal. Uh, Bruce, I wanted to ask you the same question that I asked Seth. Uh, what do you make of the idea of a stimulus? Do you think it's completely necessary to have a strong holiday season, or do you think that we can push through and have a good holiday season without another $1,200 uh, stimulus check? Um, I, you know, I think maybe more of the latter. Um, one of the things that I've heard discussed a little bit, but but not necessarily in the mainstream, is that you know with the pandemic lockdown, um, with some of the payments, um, you know the bonus unemployment that you've already seen out there, there are a lot of people that have discretionary spend dollars that aren't spending it on flights, they're not spending it on haircuts, they're not spending it on bar tabs, um, you know. So if you assume that your average Joe will spend 100% of his discretionary dollars. Where's that going to go? It's going to go into goods. It's going to go into, um, you know, prime deliveries. Uh, So I I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of healthy freight movements out there on top of the restocking that we're, you know, already seeing. I think that's a reason why, you know, even if we don't get another $1,200 or $1,000, whatever it be, uh, payment, um, we should still see a pretty healthy peak season. So, So, Bruce, another big trend in 2020 is SPACs. So I want to get your opinion of the, the hot market for SPACs and where this, you know, where it goes from here. You know, how long is this this, this going to, to, to last? Yeah, um, I mean, I think SPACs are here to stay. They're um, a relatively new um, vehicle for, for going public, but, but they're not brand new. I think there have been several iterations of SPACs. I think uh, investors maybe initially were a little bit suspicious of the terms. Um, but, uh, you know, they've, they've matured and evolved a, a little bit. And I think uh, they're, they're a very legitimate vehicle for public offer at this point. And to the company, you know, they make a lot of sense. The, the costs of doing the SPAC are much lower. The uh, regulatory hurdles are much lower than your traditional IPO. So um, to the extent that there's an investor appetite for it, uh, you know, it, it seems to be a win-win. Yeah, I agree with you, Bruce. I think SPACs are here to stay. Bruce, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. I've enjoyed our talk so much, my man. Thank you. 
My pleasure. Same to you. Take care. Thank right. you, Bert. All right, guys, you guys stay tuned. We've got a lot of content coming up next for you. Next, we've got J.B. Hunt, Waves Talk with Nick Hubs. But stick around for 2.30. You're going to have a great conversation, lessons from last mile abroad with me and the CEO of Lift It, Brian York. Stay tuned.